You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. It's amazing as I think about just the sovereignty of God and His goodness towards us that as you all know, a lot of times I, I start a message off and I've got either a phrase or a question or anything like that just to uh, pull our attention towards the Word of God. And I, I, in my notes, the, the first phrase that I have is peace in our time. Peace with honor. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but I just was telling somebody this morning, I was like, we're, we're, we're in Ephesians and now we're in Ephesians 2. And uh, this is incredible and I what God is doing and what he's doing in the earth and for those of you who don't know we're a part of a global family of churches every nation churches and we have seven churches in Ukraine we also have friends in Russia I have a friend who I'm in school with right now Pastor Shimek, who's our pastor in Poland who's if you know your geography is right on the border of western Ukraine and I was uh, asking him how we could pray and, and also just the, in general what uh, was going on or what might something we could pass on to you. But I want to just share this. I shared it with some different people, but I want to uh, share this. This came from one of our pastors who is over there in Ukraine. And uh, he said, I want to inspire prayer books with the words of familiar soldiers and ordinary people from all over the war. Warriors of Ukraine testify, we feel your prayer support. Sometimes something really inexplicable happens, as if someone's invisible hand really takes bullets and shells them away from us. And they fly past us. We emerge victorious from very difficult situations, as if someone is accompanying us. We become invisible to the enemy. We ourselves see even in complete darkness, and we know what to do and how to do it. It inspires us. It gives us strength. We believe that the Lord Jesus himself is with us and is for Ukraine. We ask you not to stop supporting us and continue to pray for us. We really need you. That's the power of God in the midst of a situation that we have all kinds of maybe thoughts and there'll be all kinds of spin and it'll all be very political. But I'm here to tell you that this is not something that the Bible doesn't address. This is not something that the Bible doesn't speak to. And there's only one who receives the glory when there's peace. And his name is Jesus. Peace in our time. Peace with honor. That phrase might sound familiar if you're a history student or a student of history, but certainly peace is something that we find extremely elusive, always have. To date, it's obviously something that we have not accomplished worldwide. There's wars, there's always been wars, there's skirmishes going on even when you don't know about it all the time, all over the world, on a macro level as we're talking about what's happening in Ukraine right now, but then also other places on the world. And then in a micro level, we have hostility and unrest in our own state, probably our own county, even our school board commission meetings. I feel like there's a time when if you were to ask anyone, where's, if you had one wish, what would it be? It was like the, the general answer from everybody's, I just wish for world peace. 
That would be a common answer. Now I think as a more individualist society and maybe more pessimist or realist, whichever you identify with the most, when it comes to peace, we might say this, peace in our world, look, I've given up on that, but just how about peace in my house? How about peace in my heart and my mind? We, we, we've like given up on the reality of what Christ came for in the first place. And we boiled it down to, well, man, can I just have peace myself? In his fascinating book, Talking with Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell writes about how terrible we are as human beings at reading other people. Pretty much incapable of knowing if somebody else is telling the truth or telling a lie. And then if they say, well, I'm pretty good at that. Here's another thing that he found out. We overestimate our ability to read what people are thinking. We think we can read people. And we overestimate our ability to do so. And to his point, peace in our time was the triumphant declaration of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain after he had a conversation and a talk and made a peace treaty with the ever trustworthy and man of his word, Adolf Hitler. A man of his word, trustworthy. That's how Neville Chamberlain thought of Hitler, this stranger that he was talking to. Incorrectly, as we all know, in hindsight, after talking to the stranger, one year later, Germany invaded Poland, demonstrating not just how incorrectly Chamberlain judged Hitler, but how obviously ineffective making a peace treaty between two different human beings, how ineffective it really is. History tells us that peace treaties, or in the biblical times, they were taught, called eternal covenants. How not eternal, they really were. I was reading historically, there's like some 7,000 different eternal covenants in, in ancient history that were made, and none of them lasted more than two years. I thought, wait, wait, I thought this was an eternal covenant, an eternal peace treaty. But none of those peace missions lasted. You might have sent the envoy. You might have sent this person to talk to that person. And, and you might have sent them over and they're going to make a peace treaty. And none of them lasted. Because there's only one peace mission where an eternal covenant was made. And it was made by the Prince of Peace. He came in the flesh, walking with us, talking with us. Those that saw him as an absolute stranger. The word says he came and, and lived with us and walked among us and we did not know him. He was a stranger to us. And although he was face to face because as sinners we were on the outside not even knowing that there was an inside to look into. But Jesus made a way. So we just sang when our backs were against the wall and it looked like it was over. Jesus made a way by his blood for us to be at peace with God and with one another forever. Here's the gospel truth, the overarching truth that we want to talk about today in Ephesians 2. Jesus came not just so that we could have peace in our time, but so that we could have peace for all time, forever, eternal peace we're in week three of the series, Sit, Walk, Stand, where we're looking at the position, the practice, and the power that we have as believers in this world. For those of us who are in Christ, positionally, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That we are walking in the Spirit and walking according to God's Word and bringing honor and glory to His name. And that we're standing, as we just sang again, in the power of the name above all names. As we talked about in Ephesians 1, the incomparable power of the name of Jesus that's in work inside of us to help us stand in faith 
to the end. Last week, Kevin did a powerful job of preaching Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And I'm so grateful that whether it's Kevin or my wife Carla or whoever stands up here is able to speak under the anointing of the power of God to deliver the word in such a powerful way. And he did such a great job last week. And I had a phenomenal time with Pastor Dr. Chris Johnson in our church, Divine Unity Community Church up in Virginia, uh, an incredible place, a beautiful place, a beautiful church, a diverse church. I mean, I was blown away by what God's doing right there in the middle of that city, right next to James Madison University. And God's doing something powerful there. He's doing something powerful here. He's doing something powerful all over the world. But all I know is that he even did a great job. And I know he is called to this ministry. He's called to do what God's called him to do here. But if he needs a side hustle, it sounds like it could be in home renovations and restorations. <laughs> There's Chip and Joanne over there today. So in his first 10 verses, Kevin talked about and covered, we saw the salvation of sinners in general. That all humankind was dead in their sin. Didn't know it, but they were dead in their sin. And because of God's mercy and great mercy, his grace that he poured out, now by grace through faith, we could be made alive. And then in these next few verses we're going to cover today, we see what Christ has done for Gentiles in particular. That would include you and I. And the reason this is the, the case is because Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And all of these people in Ephesus that he's writing to mostly were Gentile converts. So if you have your Bible, I want to start in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11 and go through verse 22 today, breaking that up. But that's our text. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. The situation that Paul is addressing right here in these verses, this long, centuries-long divide between ethnic Jews and then every other ethnic group in the Near East. Call them Gentiles. Whether you were a barbarian, Scythian, what did they do? All of them were Gentiles because they were outside of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. Here again, last week is a picture of what we once were. So we talked about last week, this week, once were, and then what we become. And I want you to notice something in verse 11 and 12 that we talk about often here because it is a theme of Scripture. It's the theme of Christianity, if you will. And he says to remember. It's the word remember in verse 11. Therefore, remember. Then he says it again in verse 12. Remember. There are a lot of arguments in our world today about what we should remember and what we shouldn't remember. What we should talk about and what we shouldn't talk about. But Paul is commanding us in verse 11 and 12 and all throughout Scripture, we see this again and again, to remember and never forget. And here's what he's saying. Remember what we were before the love of God reached into our broken, helpless, hopeless lives and saved us. Remember that. Don't ever forget what you used to be before Christ stepped in. He's saying to remember, listen to this, he's not even just saying to remember like, okay, well it was kind of bad. No, he's saying, I want you to remember how bad it really was. 
Remember how bad it was. Don't sanitize it. Don't clean it up. Remember, in verse 12, he even starts by reminding them of who they were from birth. Something they couldn't control. Hey, remember who you were from birth. And then he told them the derogatory name that they were called because of what they were from birth. Remember that. Then he goes on to say, you were called uncircumcised because that's how you were born. And they call themselves the circumcised. And then in parentheses it says, it's done by human hands. Basically saying, well, it's something they did themselves. And there's something even greater that God does in our hearts that cannot be done by human hands. He was saying, I don't care what they call you or what they call themselves, but I want you to remember correctly. Remember your alienation, your separation, and your isolation. Why? So that you can rightly remember the greatness of God's grace for your reconciliation. See, Paul does the instructing all of a sudden now of how you're going to remember. Because we like to remember differently than the way Bible instructs us to remember. The way Jesus instructs us to remember. The way God and Paul instructs us to remember. We like to remember our way. We like to rewrite histories. And Paul is saying, I want you to remember correctly by remembering what you didn't have. You see, it's when you have been without that you most appreciate what you have received. Hello? It's, been, it's when you're without water for a long time that you appreciate taking a drink of water. It's when you're without food for a long time that you appreciate the eating of food. So many of us have had so many things, we don't know what it's like to be without. And that's what Paul's saying. Don't forget what life was like when you were without Christ. I remember when I went off to college, and some of you know I've told some of my car stories that I had growing up and some of the wonderful cars that I had uh, in high school, some that didn't drive, some that nobody would want to drive, and all those types of vehicles. And when I went to college my freshman year, I didn't have a vehicle. I, was, I had to, you know, there was no Uber back then. The Uber was, hey, bro, can you take me down to the store? That was, that was Uber, uh, if somebody had a car. But then I remember my sophomore year, my dad, between my year, I had made a little bit of money and put some of my money with money that my dad gave me, and he bought me a car to go to college with my sophomore year. And because I had been without one for my whole freshman year, man, I drove everywhere my sophomore year. I'd drive from my dorm to the parking space to the, 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 where I get lunch. And it was just like I would move, you know, just move, just like I could get in a car and drive. Not really made that up but I drove a lot of places somebody went hey can you drive I'll drive because I've been without and now I had something it was something new so here's what Paul's doing he's painting this portrait of alienation separation and isolation because they were without Christ and the Ephesians right they worship the goddess Diana that's who they worship and before they even had ever heard of the gospel they didn't know anything about Jesus didn't know anything about Christ much like us, before Jesus came into our lives, we didn't know anything about him. Maybe we heard about something, but we didn't know we worshiped other things, other gods. Maybe it wasn't Diana, but it was something else. Maybe we worshiped Michael Jackson and we sang Dirty Diana. I don't know. <laughs> but we worshiped other things. And here's what they were, according to Scripture in verse 12, here's what they were without. They were without citizenship. That means they were foreigners in the nation. That's what Gentiles were. They were not a part of the nation of Jews. They were outsiders. So he says, you're without citizenship. Remember that. 
They were without covenants. There were no covenants made with Gentiles. All these covenants were made with the people of God, the Jews. And they were aliens and strangers and had no covenants with God themselves. He says they were without hope. Like any of us, without Christ, everything we try to fill the void never works. So they were hopeless and they had all kinds of things and maybe they had money and maybe they had pleasure and maybe they had all kinds of material things, but they were still without hope. And then he says they were without God. They had many gods. He says at that time you could find a God easier than you could find a person, but not a relationship with the one true God. That's what they didn't have. And Paul said in Romans that they knew God, but they willfully chose to ignore him. But this is normative because starting in Genesis and throughout all of human history, it's never been about humans starting with many gods and figuring out that there's only one true God. It was, and the story was, and still is really about there is one true God and man and woman deliberately turned away from him and chose other gods. Our story is one of devolution, not evolution as one writer put it the gentiles were christless stateless friendless hopeless and godless and then paul sums all of it up in verse 13 by saying you are just as far away as you could be you were so far off you didn't even know there was somewhere else to go here's the stark reality this is all of us before God steps into our broken, hopeless, helpless lives through his son, Jesus Christ. And we still build walls. We still set up partitions. We still have curtains, if you will, that separate us from God and separate us from one another. We still have barriers that we don't try to overcome. Barriers of ethnicity, caste, class, tribe, tongue, economic barriers, political barriers, even denominational barriers. And here's the thing. Divisiveness and division are constant characteristics of every Christless person and every Christless community. But, and here's that conjunction that we love to see in the Word of God. It's the one that Pastor Keevan said last week in the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. But, praise be to God, there is good news in the gospel. So let's move to the glorious inheritance and intervention of our gracious God on behalf of unworthy sinners like me. If the previous section can be described as what we were apart from Christ, this section can best be described as what Jesus Christ has done. See, hopelessness is about what we've done and what we try to do to make up for what we've done and what we try to do to tip the scales. That is a hopeless endeavor. The gospel is always about what Christ has already done and what he will do because of what he's done on the cross. So chapter 2, verse 13. This parallels the but God that we talked about last week in verse 4. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I was thinking, you know, if, if we put somebody on this side of the stage and somebody on this side of the stage, there's no way you just cut everything out in the middle and you can't get there. It, it, multiply that by a gajillion and that's how far away we were from God. The distance that you could never make up, the chasm that you could never cross, the void that you could never fill and Jesus did it for you. The dividing line between the era of bloody separation and the era of the blood-bought reconciliation, the dividing line between those two that brought them near is the cross. 
and now we are reconciled. No longer being alienated, separated, and isolated, but now integrated, assimilated, and incorporated into the body of Christ. And the word we use to describe the indescribable is reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. So check this out in verse 14. Going on, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and all its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to to you who are far away and peace to those who are near for through him we both have access to the father by one spirit man i love ephesians someone who loves the local church and loves what god's doing in the local church i love ephesians this word hostility in some translations it says enmity it's important in this section of scripture because this hostility and enmity is twofold it's between jews and gentiles they had hostility towards one another and it's also between god and sinners and that's always been the case so the prince of peace comes on the greatest peace mission of all time so that there could not just be peace in our time but peace for all time and he reconciles which means he brings people together again reconcile means to bring together again he reconciles the most divided people on the planet into one body called the church Get this, Paul wasn't saying, because this is how we think about stuff like this, when especially in an individualist mindset where we think about people getting saved, he's not saying, listen, why don't you give your life to Jesus and then you can go on about your life. No, fam, he's saying you're gonna be fam. He's like, oh, I'm gonna get saved and then I'm gonna go do my thing. Mm -mm. Oh, they can get, I don't care, they can get saved, I just don't wanna do life with them. See, if you're going to be family, and worship God together, then Christ is gonna come in and do a work, and guess what, you're going to do that in the same place. He's basically saying, you're gonna worship God as one people in the same temple. The same church. You're not gonna be on that side of town and they're gonna be on that side of town. No, you're gonna come together in the same place. And how did he do it? Verse 15, by setting aside all the laws and all the commands and regulations, it says, the ceremonial laws that the Jews had, for centuries, Jews had all kinds of laws, different than the Gentiles. Just like we have a lot of differences in our cultures a lot of times, worldwide, and even in the United States, we'll have differences culturally. So you have a different way of, of eating, you have a different way of dressing, you have different laws that say this is what you're supposed to do before you worship in your religion. And here's what Jesus did. He came and fulfilled every type of the Old Testament ceremonial system. He fulfilled all of it so that it could divide us no longer. He's like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to fulfill that. And I'm going to take down all these walls that y'all have used to divide yourselves. And as it relates to the moral law, because this is really talking about the ceremonial law here, as it relates to the moral law and how we act and what we do, he didn't abolish certain standards that we live and honor God through our lives. But what he did abolish was making what we do as a way to salvation. He abolished my morality being my ticket to heaven. Nope, by grace, through faith alone, nothing that you did in yourselves. So the question that arose when Gentiles got saved 
is do Gentiles then, okay, okay, all right, all right, God. I think I got it. Gentiles could be saved, but do they have to become Jewish to be Christian? And you know what the resounding answer was? No. No, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to stay away from pigs. They don't have to eat this way. They don't have to think this way. They don't have to dress this way. They don't have to cut their beard this way. They don't have to wear their shoes this way. No, and before we think how ridiculous this division is, we've got to come to grips with the ways we still create our own barriers through national affiliations and political affiliations. And whoever falls outside of those boundaries, well, they couldn't possibly be a Christian. Oh, I'm, I believe what the word of God says is, it's not my affiliations here that cause me to be saved in Christ it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and when Jesus shed his blood on the cross he paid the price necessary to destroy the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles there was a literal wall in the temple that said as a Gentile if you come past this partition you will do so at threat of death if you come past here to worship with them you're going to get killed not to mention the veil that was up in the temple between us and God, separating us from the holy of holies, if you will, the literal divisions that Jesus came to tear down. Romans 10 says, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Christ, we become one. As verse 14 says, he is our peace. What kind of peace? Our peace with God and our peace with one another. Peace that we can't make it on, in on, on our own. Remember the old position we started with that I started with this morning that Paul said, don't forget this. Don't forget what you once were. Because that just makes you so much more grateful for who you are now. Don't forget what you once were without. So he says, you've gone from without Christ to being in Christ. You've gone from stateless to a holy nation. You've gone from friendless to a friend of God. You've gone from hopeless to called according to one hope. You've gone from godless to having God as your heavenly father. That's what you've gone from without to now what you have being in Christ. And we see this work of peace Jesus came to do. And it wasn't just to abolish something. It was to create something new. I mean, we're all about abolishing stuff. But God is our creator. The devil is the destroyer. And he's not about just abolishing things. He's about creating new things that bring honor and glory to him. And in this case, a new people. A new community called what? The church. We have become one. And this new unity through and in Christ goes far deeper than just Jew and Gentile, my friends. The cross does away with every difference that we would still come up with in this world today. Whether it's gender or social divisions or distinctions, all of them he begins to do away with. He doesn't remove our obvious differentiations. He doesn't remove the uni unique way that he's created us. But what he does is says there is no more inequality with God through Christ at the cross. It's level for all. So what we see in verse 16 and 18 is that Gentiles needed to be reconciled to Jews, but both Jews and Gentiles needed to be reconciled to God. The real question wasn't, did a Gentile need to be like a Jew to be saved, but could a Jew admit that they were a sinner like a Gentile in order to be saved? 
It wasn't really, hey, do the sick need a healer to make them well? It's that those that think they're well, do they come to the place of admitting that they're sick and need to be healed? It's not that those that are irreligious don't need someone to help them be saved. It's that those that are religious know that they don't really know Jesus and he's a stranger to them. And here's what we see, that Jesus is our peace. Jesus made peace and Jesus preached peace. That's what it says. So in these verses, we see the enmity and the hostility between sinners, Jew and Gentile, and God has been killed at the cross. And I believe Jesus Christ is still preaching. That's what the word tells us. He's still preaching peace today. How? He does so through the mouths and the lives of those who follow him today called Christians who are part of the body of Christ called the church. Verse 18 says that through him we have access, which means continued relationship with God. We've got access not just to a king, but to our heavenly father. And we have this access again and again at all times together as God's people. This is the penultimate achievement of Christ's peacemaking that we all come to the Father together through Christ in one spirit, which leads to the final part of this chapter, what we have become, what we were, what Christ has done, and the final part is about what we have become. Verse 19, let's read it. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we can say the progression has been separation, reconciliation, and now unification. Separation from God, reconciliation through Christ, and unification in Christ. Paul begins to illustrate this in a beautiful way between the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles and the church and he describes it this way. He said, now you are one nation. Peter says it later on, you are a holy nation. The new nation is the church. It's not a physical location. It's not someplace on the map. It's the church and it's made up of all who call on the name of Jesus, regardless of what earthly nation they are from. What sin had divided, Christ now united and all believers now belong to a holy nation, a people of God with our primary citizenship, not being here, but being in heaven. It's when we get it mixed up that we think our primary citizenship is here that we begin to do things that destroy the name of God. We are one family. Say, well, do you, do you love, you know, the nation? I love the nations. I love our nation. But I want us to understand that we are a part of a new nation, a holy nation, a people of God called to show forth his praises for those who he called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. He also said we're one family. And this is probably the most beautiful thing that we have become and the one that we understand the best because it really relates to life. This is the more intimate metaphor that we are all members of God's household, he says. Hey, you're in God's house. You're part of that family now. We're more than fellow citizens in the same holy nation. We're family. 
We're brothers. We're sisters in Christ. No matter what our ethnic, national, or physical distinctions are, we are family. And this familial love is supposed to be special and unique, a characteristic of God's brand new community, his new society in the middle of the old society called the church of Jesus Christ. And then finally he says we're one temple. So why does that matter? Because all throughout Scripture, God had a dwelling place. God dwells now in the hearts of those who have trusted Christ. We've become his dwelling place in the church collectively. Historically, there'd always been a temple, right? At some point after we had the, the tent, the tabernacle, there's the temple, and that's where God would dwell, in the Holy of Holies. So the question would have been, watch this, where is God going to dwell now because of what Christ has done? Where's he going to dwell now? Because it was the temple. What city is he going to dwell in? What building is he going to dwell in? But some geographical location would never do for the God who is bigger than we can even imagine. You know why? Too much pride. I know we can't imagine what that would be like to think that we were the one holy nation, the one place that God would dwell over all others. No, it had to be something as massive and diverse as every heart of every believer worldwide that would be joined together and united by the same cornerstone, Jesus Christ. You know what a cornerstone does? It brings two walls together and joins them together. And it also, it doesn't just join them and unify them. It makes it possible for them to grow. So watch this. Jesus binds the two together and he causes us the structure to grow the church so Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our lives is indispensable to the church's unity and to the church's growth unless we are in Christ remain in Christ constantly and securely our unity will turn to division and our growth will cease here's the good news God is not limited to or tied to a holy building or a holy location or a holy state or a holy place he is connected to a holy people a new community called the church worldwide so let me close with some modern context and application for us here at In Focus Church, I just want to talk about the modern application for us because there's one thing that I know. If you're here right now, it's because God's called you here and you want to be here. That's what I know. If you're here right now, it's because you want to be here. It's because God's called you here and you sense and feel and gravitate toward what God is doing in his church in the earth and particularly contextually speaking what he's doing in the church right here in this community. So this is what Paul is teaching to us today through Ephesians. The blood of Jesus is the only way that we as sinners can come to a holy God. That, that's the foundation of the gospel. One of them. Therefore, the blood of Jesus is the one and only way that God has designed for all ethnic groups to come to each other in peace in the Ukraine, in Russia, and in Evans, Georgia. In essence, coming to God in Christ together, the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins is the only way any human from any ethnic group can be reconciled to God. Therefore, the blood of Jesus is the only way God has designed for every ethnic group to be reconciled to one another, reconciled to God and reconciled together as one new humanity. We love Christ-exalting diversity here, not because it's a cool social issue, but because it's a costly blood issue. 
We love Christ-exalting ethnic diversity in the church because we love the gospel. Christ removed the hostility between humankind by removing the hostility between God and humankind. God's wrath is removed because Christ bore our punishment on the cross. Now God is our father and his family consists of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can confidently conclude that God is calling all people to move from alienated, separated, and isolated bloodlines of race and ethnicity ethnicity into one bloodline of Jesus Christ. The point is that God aims to create one new people called the church who are reconciled to each other across every division that we often create. Not strangers, not aliens, not hostile, no enmity, not far off, but fellow citizens of one holy nation, a people of God who are one family, brothers and sisters whose love is evident to all, one habitation, one temple of a holy God, and God made this possible at the cost of his son's life. We love to dwell on reconciliation to God through the death of his son, and we should, because it's beyond description how amazing it is to have peace with God because of what Christ has done. But let us also dwell on this, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile hostile people groups to each other in one body of Christ called the church. This too was the design of the death of Christ. Remember what we all once were, that Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart towards somebody else made in the image of God. And whatever the ethnicity, we could all come together and be at peace. We could be one. And I understand, look, we're all more comfortable in certain spaces. We all are. There's nothing absolutely wrong with that. We're comfortable in certain spaces, certain situations, maybe with certain people. But here here is what's wrong. To deliberately perpetuate the barriers Christ removed in the church or to tolerate them without intentionally and actively trying to overcome them in order to demonstrate the diverse but unified new community called the church is to set ourselves against the reconciling work of Christ and even to try to undo it. It also hinders the world from around us seeing Jesus as he truly is. We are to be visible representations of the power of reconciliation. That is why we are all called ministers of reconciliation. What good is the gospel if it does not produce gospel-looking churches? We should weep over the credibility gap between what we say the cross has done and what it looks like the cross has done. We don't excuse, we don't condone our imperfections, but we are determined to be a new community, a new family, a reconciled family of brothers and sisters who love our Heavenly Father and love one another so that the world will believe in Jesus Christ as the ultimate peacemaker, peace in our time and peace forevermore that will give God the glory that is due his name. Amen. What a powerful opportunity we have right now. What powerful opportunity in the earth we have right now. This battle that's going on far off that we think, well, it doesn't affect us well. And then here's what we think. And I'm just, listen, hear me out. Well, that's going to affect the gas prices. 
And then we put little stickers on the gas pump. I did that. Oh, it's going to affect this. Oh, it's going to affect the price of this and that. And Oh, this is important. We need to get involved because it's going to make us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable that I've got a friend and a brother and a sister that could lose their life. You know what makes me uncomfortable? Is there people made in the image of God that are building up the walls that Christ came to kill? That breaks my heart. That should break the heart of every believer. That's why we care. Not because of the economy, and I get it, but God is our provider. We care because they're made in the image of God and they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter how far off physically they are, God has brought them near to us through the cross. Jesus has made a way and he's going to make a way. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.